Coast Church, Charlotte. So, all right. So to teach in an expository manner would be we read the text. We ask ourselves, what does the text say? What did it say to them? What is it saying to us? And um, it is, it's very good because uh, it's pure. We take ourselves to the Bible. We bend our knee. We incline our heart and we let it speak to us. Do you see? Um, however, on Sundays, because Sundays are so intentionally uh, evangelistic, and we work so hard to make the young believer, or shall we say, the non-church person, we work to try to include them to make them welcome, because Sunday has to be that on-ramp to the body of Christ. And so, it doesn't matter if people, um, well, let me say it this way. On Sundays, the only thing that matters is their next step. Um, what is what they will respond to. So you have to, in many ways, preach to their hearts where they are right now. And there will, of course, be a lot of um, uh, perhaps testimonial type preaching, uh, storytelling. Um, what you're trying to do is touch their heart. But when we go expositorily, we simply humble ourselves to the word. And so I have wanted to get back to the gospel of Mark and we're going to do that. And we finished right here. Uh, Jesus said, whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. All right. That's where we ended. Let's read at verse number 31. And we will, again, we will begin to directly apply this text to our life and our circumstances. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's really interesting when you try to have a come to Jesus meeting with Jesus. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Uh, All right. So uh, we have a lot here to unpack. Uh, I will not do it justice in terms of time, but uh, let's, let's give it a shot. I say that to explain this. As Bible students, after we get done tonight, we will have not even scratched the surface of this, but the themes are not subtle here. The, the themes are strong, and if you want to be mature in the Lord, if I want to be mature in the Lord, then I am going to have to get this important theme that's being shown to us here in um, the second half of Mark chapter number eight, Uh, just to catch us all up um, that disciples are no longer following um, because Jesus represents a career move for their teaching uh, plans. They're no longer following because Jesus is exciting. This is after the decline of Jesus's popularity. The first year was the celebrity season. Uh, and then the second year was the year of rejection. 
This is after, toward the end of the second year and uh, uh, going in or after that, going into the third year of their time. Well, I should say it like this. Jesus didn't make it to three years, but you have the first year, the second year, and six months of the third year. That's Jesus's ministry. That's the season we are talking about, that last time of compression before Jesus actually will be taken to Calvary and there slain uh, as the Lamb of God to cover all of our sins. And he decides, having clarity now, that the disciples are no longer thinking of him as simply a life coach, a philosophical instructor or a philosopher, or even thinking of him as a type of rabbi. They are seeing in him deity that matters, that matters, that matters, that matters. Notice how one question is placed right against the, the invocation of the cross. The question is, do you see God in me? Who do you say that I am? Am I a philosopher to you? Who do you say that I am? None of us are ready for sacrifice until we have clarity on who Jesus is in our life. Not just as an object of hope, although he is an object of hope. Not just as a famous world religion founder, although he is. Not, not just a religious figurehead, although that's true, but he is our personal hope and he is our personal truth. The, they have to see that he is not a way to truth. He is the truth. He is not a way to life. He is the life. Do you see? Um, why does this matter? Because if you do not see that we are complete in Jesus Christ, The cross will always offend us. The cross will scare people away. So uh, you guys have heard me say this before, but if you've served the Lord very long, you should be able to say this for yourself whenever you're talking about uh, church, uh, different kinds of churches, uh, first church. Um, And basically the idea is this. Um, When Jesus calls his disciples, he simply offers an invitation. And if you've been through this before, uh, you will remember the invitation. What was it? He simply says, come and see. Okay, that's how they are invited into this 12, this level of consecration, commitment, and even prophecy. Uh, The very foundations of heaven are the new Jerusalem is built upon the foundations of the 12 disciples. (laughs) Um, read revelations Uh, they do not start with calvary they start with simple interest come and see come and see and this is how the disciples are called in that's the beginning Uh, later here mark 8 jesus is inviting them to calvary Uh uh-huh Jesus is inviting them to Calvary. In fact, he challenges them that if any of you would be my disciple, let him deny the self, take up the cross and follow me. Um, So he started with simple interest, come and see. But now he's inviting them to a cross. So here's the reality of all churches and all church cultures. There are some churches that are very good at simple interest. They are very good at simply saying, come and see. They can get you started. 
uh, but they're not so good at join me at Calvary. They're not so good at come and die. Uh, Jesus didn't start anyone at come and die. On the other hand, there's churches that are very, very good at preaching consecration, and they start everybody at come and die. You can get a blessing in their church, and within a week, they've got a project. You're a project, and they're lining you up with a religious uh, makeover. You don't even know if you're going to make it, and they've, they've already got you lined up. They're good at come and die. But I want you to see the genius in the leadership of Jesus. He starts everybody at interest, but then he takes them to sacrifice. First church, hear me, all you strong believers, all of you people serving God, we don't take a seat at come and see unless it's at the feet of Jesus. Because it's at the feet of Jesus, we know he's taken us somewhere. He's leading us. I have to ask myself and all of you strong believers, is there a cross in your Christianity or is it merely a religious interest? He starts everybody at interest, but he leads us to Calvary. And it's here, Mark 8, where having been assured that they know who he is, they know that the Father is manifest in him. Now they're ready to hear that there's no sidestepping Calvary. There's no getting around the cross. There's no way to make sin pretty or the covering of sin bloodless. We're going to Calvary. We're going to pay. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer, must suffer. Peter, we don't get to give this to a marketing department and make it pretty. We don't get to put it in soft lights and wrap it in purple ribbon and then turn it into a Christmas drama. We're going to Calvary. You have to tell the whole story, Peter. There's not an abracadabra for sin. You may not be the one paying, Peter, but somebody has to pay. I'm so thankful today that God has not asked me for, to pay for my own sins. I can't pay the debt of my own sins. My sins crush me to the ground. The cross leaves me on my face, unable to carry it. But the Lord provides someone to carry my cross. This is what Christ does uh, in grace. Uh, he shows us that although we are not the ones paying the debt of our sin, we should not presume that there is not a price being paid. He must suffer many things. Rejection is not an accident, Peter. They're going to scourge me. They're going to whip me. They're going to mock me. They're going to humiliate me. They're going to strip me. They're going to parade me. And finally, having had their fun, they're going to crucify me until I give up my spirit. There's no way to make this pretty, Peter. This must happen. Well, Peter, uh, he wants to have a disagreement with God. Now, it's probable that Peter means well. Um, I've seen lots of people do tremendous damage, and through the whole of it, they meant well. Um, but they uh, did not have, it's almost always vanity that causes us to do harm. Almost always. Uh, you can do harm whether if you know what you're doing or if you don't know what you're doing. Um, if you mean to or you don't mean to. 
But no matter how it unfolds, there will almost always be a thick, thick layer of vanity uh, over all the harm that we do. If there was a church forensics whereby we could go into a split church, uh, a harmed young believer, uh, someone who had given up their faith, and if we could do a forensic study um, on how they were hurt in the church, how uh, like uh, that son of Saul, Mephibosheth, they were dropped and left lame while someone was trying to save them. If we could do a church-wide forensics and we had all of the technology that uh, say the FBI can use and they, they go to the site of a terrorist blast and they just look for the residue. And if they find the residue, they know what the explosive was. They know in many cases where the explosive was made. They know the batch, the, the uh, molecular and chemical fingerprint of the substance. They trace it. They know it if they can find the residue. Every time you find a church that's been harmed, you find a church that's been split, you find young believers who have lost their faith, you see a swath of damage where wolves pretending to be sheep uh, or deceiving themselves that they were sheep went through and harmed. And you could put the church forensic team on, you know, the, you know, the residue that would be found every single time in the detritus of a destroyed church, it would be vanity. There would be people who did not know how to simply shut up, stop talking about other people, stop judging, stop presuming they know more, stop presuming they're righteous and other people are unrighteous. Vanity is always there. Let me say it this way. It's vanity that lets Peter take Jesus aside. It's vanity. Doesn't matter if he means well or not. John didn't have the confidence. And John was one of the sons of thunder. Peter, the vanity. He takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him. Now, rebuke is a fairly strong word. Even in the uh, Greek, rebuke is a fairly strong word. Um, it's, there's, there's other words that could have been used that are much more subtle. Um, but rebuke is a, a, even in the Greek, rebuke is a strong word. And Peter rebukes him. And here's the interesting thing. Everybody was watching. So Peter evidently uh, was being watched by the other disciples or the other disciples knew in the manner of friends saying, you know, I know so-and-so is doing that, but I just want you to know I'm going to talk to him. And everybody wants to know how it went. So look at this. Uh, there's some subtleness in the text here. He spoke this word. Jesus spoke the word openly, but Peter takes him aside away from the others, but everybody knows what he's doing and they're watching. And so when Jesus had turned around and looked at his disciples, do you see the social dynamics here? He sees everybody watching. And it's at that moment, I believe that Peter gets a public rebuke because it was a public confrontation. Even if Peter tried to act like it was private, this is a perfect example of church trouble. The people causing the trouble have already gone around and gathered an army of sympathizers before they ever try to help you. They've already talked to all their friends and they've already lined all their complainers up 
and they've already encouraged one another, and then they come talk to you, brother, I don't think you're doing this right. Um, vanity, the residue in all broken churches and damaged uh, believers is vanity. Um, he has done an intervention on Jesus. And Jesus, don't miss it, turns and sees the disciples. And he publicly rebukes Peter and he says, uh, and here's some more strong word. You can read this in the Greek. It sounds just as strong in the Greek. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is so fascinating to me. Um, he does not say, Jesus does not say, Satan, you're mindful of the things of Satan. <laughs> he says, Satan, you're mindful of the things of men. Why? What? How? Does humanity and Lucifer think alike? How could that be? Lucifer is the greatest of the created beings. Now, remember, God is not created. God is the creator. Thank you very much. Uh, but of the greatest created beings, Lucifer was that glorious morning star, you see. And here we are, lower than the angels. And the Lord rebukes Peter as being the mouthpiece of Satan and says, you're mindful of the things of men. Wait, I thought we were rebuking Satan. Why wouldn't you say you're mindful of Satan's devices or you're mindful of the desires of the prince and the powers of the air? Why does Jesus put Satan and the thoughts of humankind together? Here's why. Uh, they both pursue self. That's the central problem. We followed in the path of Lucifer by rebelling. And when Lucifer deceived Eve in the garden, he deceives her in the language and terms and context of her self-interest. He doesn't say, serve me. Satan does not say, serve me. He says, serve yourself. He doesn't say, look out for me. He says, look out for you. He says, look, God's trying to keep you down, not join my team. So the path, the snare that is so powerful here in Mark chapter number eight, that if you will read the text, it will just slap you right upside the face, is this reality that a man, Peter, speaks with the voice of Satan, and it is rep rep representative of the thoughts, reasoning, philosophies of humanity. Once you start serving yourself, you and the devil have a lot in common. When I start serving self, me and the devil, we have a lot in common. The battle of the Christian is to turn away from self, deny the self, find a role, a calling, a place of spiritual purpose, which is always the vertical and the horizontal. God's call, humanity's need, and carry that cross. Do you see? Carry that cross. So uh, let's, uh, how am I doing on time? All right, I, I've still got a couple hours I can go and no one can complain. So um, I want to have you think for a moment on the challenge of surrendering ways and means to God. Uh, you've all heard of the Ways and Means Committee that is in the Congress. And what they do is they, they legislate, legislate the way to do things and the means to get something done. Ways, 
and means. Um, all of us have a ways and means for God. Um, we, all of us, even when we want good things, oftentimes we want it our way. Do you see? Um, when we desire even a good thing, we tend to have a preferred method the Lord to, to pass. Um, and the rebuke to Satan, the voice of Satan through Peter, and the rebuke to Peter in many ways is a teaching moment for Peter, yes, but also for all the disciples. Because when Jesus turns and sees the disciples watching, as it were, indexing what's happening between Peter, we know Peter's going to talk to Jesus about, you know, his theology being wrong and that Peter's going to, you know, the Lord's lost his way and Peter's going to save him. Praise Peter. Um, the teaching moment is so powerful because it emerges, it springs onto the stage of spiritual instruction because Jesus is aware of all the disciples watching him. These are men who, if they do not learn to trust God's, God's ways over their ways, uh, their part of the church is going to fail. None of these men are going to have a happy ending. Even John is going to have a difficult, difficult, painful end of his life. Uh, whether through torture, which happened, through banishment, which happened, and then finally in the last few years of his life, brought back by another emperor and allowed to live the last days of his life writing 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, he's the only one. And so uh, the, the, the point that I want you all to see that if these men don't learn how to trust God with the uncertainty of what the gospel will cost them, the church is going to have to find another way. God's going to have to find another way. If there's one thing that is clearly necessary for these men, they have to be willing to give all, not part, not some, but all. All of these men are going to die for what they believe. Save John the Beloved and they're going to boil him in oil. He will survive, but after that, I don't know if he wanted to. Um, I, want, I want all of you to see that although we read this as a type of theological insight, which is not wrong, for them, it was a necessary hurdle. So let me ask you this. What in your life is it absolutely incumbent for you to die out to or the trajectory of what you can do for God is always going to be hindered. Let me personalize this because I'm no better than anyone. What in my life do I have to die out to in order for the trajectory of my future spiritual possibility to come to fruition? If these disciples at this moment do not learn this lesson that I don't get to choose how I go out. I don't get to choose how I win. Remember I said that. I don't get to choose how the church makes an impact on the world. They all have to say in their spirit, I'm just honored to be included. And if I am ran down with a chariot, that's God's business. If I'm ran through with a spear, that's God's business. 
If I'm crucified upside down, that's God's business. I'm just honored to be included because the New Testament church, the authenticity and the power of the New Testament church is going to rest upon witnesses who at the point of their death refuse to change their story. Why does that matter? Because the ages that come through their and death have a testimony that cannot be refuted. And it goes like this. The whole world says they lied. The whole world says they made all this up. But why die for a lie? Why would you be willing to die for something you made up with your buddies? Look, it's fun to play make-believe. People do it all the time. They dress up in Civil War interactments. They go to uh, Comic-Con and dress up like Scooby-Doo. I don't know, whatever they're into. Um, You see, uh, make-believe is fun. But the moment someone pulls out a sword and says, now, are you really Scooby-Doo? Because if you are, I'm going to kill you right here. Honey, Scooby-Doo has been retired. Because if you know it's a lie, come on, church. If you know it's a lie, why would you die for it? These 12 disciples, I'm almost done. These 12 disciples in this moment right here, Acts 8, verses 31 to 33. This is the crucible that if they cannot open their hands to how God wants to win, how God wants to tell the story, then they won't be on the team. So I asked you to remember when I said how God wins, uh, because here's the thing. Imagine having a conversation with Peter. Peter, do you want Jesus to win? I believe with everything in my heart, he would have shouted at the top of his lungs, yes. Peter, do you want this gospel to prosper? And I can just imagine loud Peter shouting to the top of his lungs, leaning over the gunwale of his boat, shouting toward us at the shore. Yes. But Peter, God's ways are not our ways. And God's going to win. But he's going to do it in a way you can't imagine. So I love the description of genius. Genius is described like this. Or let me... Talent is described like this. Talent is being able to hit a target that other people can't hit. That's talent. They aim for it. It's like me wanting to lead Sunday worship. When I go to heaven, I'm going to be a worship leader. Um, I want to lead Sunday worship. And in my mind, I can aim for moving people with my voice. But that doesn't mean I can hit it. You see what I'm saying? It might be that my wife quits church shortly after I begin singing. It might be that, you know, uh, Pastor Don thinks it's time for him to get his jukebox out and start busting a rhyme again. And we know that would uh, then Sister Venice is quitting the church. And I just want you to know that if Sister Venice and Sister Charlotte quits the church, everybody else is quitting the church, too. That's just how that says so in the scripture, Nathaniel 14 and 3. Um, So you understand what I'm saying. Um, Just because I aim for the target doesn't mean I can hit it. Um, Lots of people want to preach. Um, but they can't get four people to come to their house for a Bible study. But they they want to they want to you know be, they want us to give them two hours on Sunday. They can't get four people to come to their house to listen to them. But they want four hours on Sunday or two hours on Sunday. Um, and this is flesh, just like me 
wanting, listening to my sister-in-law lead or listening to my wife lead or listening to uh, Pastor Melek's lead or listening to his sister lead. Nicole sings so good. I, I, I try not to cuss under my breath every time I hear. I want to sing like that. Cotton picket. That's Christian. That's Christian fired, Christian fired custom right there. Um, I want to, I want to sing like that, but I can aim for it, but I can't hit it. Talent is to hit something that someone else can't hit. But genius is to hit something someone else can't even see. They didn't even know there was a target there. They never dreamt you could fix the car that way. They never perceived that you could move that chair and make the whole room work. They didn't understand why a color wheel works in opposites. You see, they, they never saw it. They're blind to it. And here's the reality of the kingdom of God. God moves in a level that we can't see. And if that's a problem for us, then vanity is always going to make us the enemy of what God does next. I want to say it again, because I think there is something profoundly true in that. We have to accept that God's going to win. Peter, do you want God to win? Yes, he shouts from his boat. Do you want Jesus to, to, to win? Yes, he shouts from his boat. Well, then why, why, why are you telling Jesus that he can't go to Calvary? Because Peter cannot see that when God wins, he's going to win in a way that no one saw coming. And that's what it means to say God's ways are above our ways. And Jesus goes to Calvary and it seems like such an obvious defeat that even Lucifer is celebrating, so to speak. They don't realize what's happening. If they did, they would not have killed the Lord of glory. They cannot perceive it. It's as though the Lord called them to a game. Let them pick all the best cards. Let them make the rules. And then lost. At which point they realized there was another game being played and he had won. But ironically, he had won for their side of the board. Now, hopefully that should make your brain hurt a little bit. But that's exactly, logically, what Jesus did for us at Calvary. He surrendered himself to our hatred. He let us transfer to him all our error and sins and transgressions. He let us smite him and mock him and spit on him. He let us kill him, and he opened not his mouth. He raised not a hand to defend himself. He stilled. I imagine those angels in heaven were trembling like a, ever seen a dog hunt? And if you ever watch a hunting dog, it is a fascinating um, a, a picture of zeal and faithfulness. And they know it's, their moment's coming, and they literally are trembling. Those, 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 those dogs are just trembling. If you ever watch um, uh, the, the dogs that race in the Iditarod, which I referred to here recently uh, preaching, um, that you, know, you watch them and they, they're all in their traces and they're ready to go. They're all lined up, buckled in, but they haven't, they haven't you know, got the, the mush. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't been served any mashed potatoes. You understand what I'm saying? No mush has been served. And they, they're not, they're not, they're not cool. I mean, they are literally trembling. They're like hopping in place. They're going, Rrr! sounds like me when my wife kicks me out of the, the kitchen. 
Um, can you imagine the angels in heaven that were standing beside Calvary, trembling, shaking, ready to go, ready to go, ready to go, uh, like those, those race dogs that they are so hyped up, they're literally crying in their, in their traces. They're just, they're crying to please let me go. Can you imagine the angels in heaven wanting to protect Jesus? But here's the thing, Peter. Jesus is going to win. It'd be really helpful if you'd humble yourself. Peter, Jesus is going to rise. It'd be really helpful if you'd humble yourself. Beneath your vanity, there is a tremendous lesson, and you need to learn it. Pray with me right now, church. Lord, there is a great lesson for all of us to learn. There is a great spiritual truth for all of us to grow into just as Peter needed to learn it. So we need to learn it. None of us are uh, where we should be in wisdom and understanding. All of us are growing. All of us are reaching and striving. And when I read a text like this, it's so heavy with spiritual importance and insight that I, I worry that I, like Peter, could be placed in. So if you, Lord, I confess today this truth, your ways are above my ways. I have no idea how you're going to do it. And so give me and all of us in this call the strength in our lives to say, Lord, we are willing to lose with you. So we might win with you also. Help us to see, Lord, that losing by the standards of this world with you is not losing. Being crucified with you is not dying, but it's the gateway to eternal life. Give us the patience, the discipline, the gentleness of heart, the meekness of spirit, not a pretend uh, acted out humility, but a real humility that shuts the mouth of our inner critic, opens the hand of our inner resistance, and we surrender ourselves to you, O oh God. We want you to lead us as a church into a, a new year of potential and spiritual strength. We want you to lead us as believers into a new year of spiritual consecration and hope. As we pray and fast this month, we ask for understanding to be given to us. Every ministry, every small group, every pastor, every leader, every believer, everyone who serves on a team, we say together, we're willing to lose with you. Because if there's anything the Bible teaches us, it's that the lose, the loss is illusion. And victory is found in our defeat. In our weakness, you are strong. Lead us by your power and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you all to uh, 
look at your your life and ask yourself what you are trying to change right now in this first month of the year. And I'd like you to put it in your prayer. And I'd like you to ask yourself if the Lord could help you to make changes in your life, if you would do it unto him. Bible says, whatever we do in word or deed, to do it all in his name. He tells us to work as unto the Lord, to serve as unto the Lord. So what do you want to change? Um, is there a is there something in your self-discipline you want to change? Is there something in your prayer life that you need to change? Come on, somebody. <laughs> is there is there some uh, change you need to make in the stewardship of your of your body? Are are you not taking care of yourself as you age? Um, all these are uh, acts of self-discipline, and it is the same kind of thing that happens when we fast. So when we fast, it should help all the arenas of discipline in our life. And there's some changes that I've want to make. I decided this year, I prayed about it, make sure I wasn't being sacrilegious. I decided to do it under the Lord. And for me, there was two big ones. They might would seem silly to others, but to me, they were big. Um, and I have every day laid those down and um, it's starting to get easy. I've kind of, I've kind of turned the corner on those, those two things. That means I need to think about one or two more things. What's next? Um, please have a heart to fast. Let's not be Christians of just come and see. Let's learn how to take up our cross. Let's be people of commitment and consecration. A Sunday, 9, 15 a.m. and 11 a.m. is going to be a great day. Uh, excited to what the, the Lord will do in all of your lives. Um, God bless you all. We love you. I haven't been doing time for questions, um, but I want to remind all of you that I almost always am, am open for, quest, for questions. If you ever think there's something that uh, I could in some way uh, bring to clarity, I may not know the answer. I, a lot of things I don't know, um, but um, I want you to have a sense of uh, there being an open forum and opportunity. All right, that's enough. God bless you all. We love you. Um, I'm going to turn, well, I never turned your mics on, off. So you can turn your mics back on and uh, greet, uh, greet everyone as you leave. We love you. God bless you. Have a great week in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.